Don't judge me. You're being judgy. Love is the absence of judgment. I don't know if you have ever heard these phrases before, uh, but being in the college and young adult ministry, I've heard these phrases stated before, um, not only to each other at times, but I've also have heard them stated even to myself as well. And I think something that we, uh, we have a, a sort of a vast misunderstanding of is what this word judgment uh, even means. Now, I want to preface this with the fact that I didn't, uh, I didn't grow up in a church that, that talked about this word very often or, or used it very much. Um, and so it's one of those things that as I come to it, one, I want to make sure that we understand biblically what this word is talking about. I mean, we've even been, even been going through the book of Judges, right? And so I just want to make sure there's a clear understanding of that. But also at the same time, I want to make sure we understand just to be careful uh, in, in how we talk about it and the ways that we say it and, and not in a way that makes me all of a sudden be the judge or condemning in any way. But at the same time, I do think it is something that does need to be talked about and something that we do need to understand. Not only the fact that every single one of us in this room Every single one of us in this room, believer, non-believer alike, one day we will be judged. One day we are going to stand before God, and that is something that is going to happen. You know, Paul and his missionary uh, adventures and his, and his evangelistic messages, he always seemed to include uh, the fact about the judgment to come when he talked about it as well. Because it's something that's talked all throughout the scriptures and that is very important. But also another thing that I want to hit on today before we get started is I want to talk about this uh, judgment and accountability. Because I think a lot of times we, we, we have those words confused as well. And we tend to throw out phrases like I mentioned before, don't judge me or you're being judgy. Uh, I think we use them maybe in the wrong way or in the wrong context because maybe we're trying to push the blame on somebody else. And so we're going to talk about that as well and what that looks like. So turn with me, if you will, and we're going to be looking at Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14, and we're going to be in verses 10 through 12. It's found on page 949, page 949 of your pew Bibles. Uh, the Pew Bible, that black Bible that is there in front of you, if you do not own a Bible and you would like one, uh, you are more than welcome to take one of those as a gift from us here at Perimeter Road as we try to purify the church and penetrate the culture in Valdosta, Georgia. But Romans chapter 14, verses 10 through 12. It says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, one thing I want to try to help you to understand here is that this is Paul writing to the church in Rome, as most of you probably know. And he's writing there to believers, fellow believers. When it says here, uh, why do you pass judgment on your brother? He's talking about two Christians, okay? He's asking a question here, as Paul often does when he starts out. And the reason he's asking this question, because it is pointing to something previously that happened within this chapter. Um, if you notice other places within Romans where he says, what shall we say then? What shall we say then? Uh, shall, you know, uh, grace abound or shall sin abound? No, 
Um, and so when we're talking about that uh, here, we need to go back to Romans chapter 14 uh, at the very beginning to understand why he's asking this question. So just read with me really quickly Romans chapter 14 verses 1 through 4 and let's get the context of what's going on here, right? Because context, context, context is the cry of the exegete. So as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Now in this situation, in this example that we are given here, you are seeing two Christians here who ultimately, as it says in verse three, what does it say? They are despising, right? Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. They're despising or they are looking down their nose at their fellow brother or sister in Christ who live differently than them, but the way that they live is not sinful. You have one who only eats vegetables, who's a vegetarian, right? Now, I know we're in the South. We probably think of that as sinful, right? I mean, you got to eat some beef, right? It's what's for dinner, right? But then you also have the person who is the vegetarian looking down their nose at the one who eats meat, who eats everything and is saying, ugh, you eat meat, right? And so this is a situation and this is a time where these two uh, fellow Christians are looking at each other in this sort of uh, dis uh, d despicable way and despising one another and looking down their nose at each other for living their life differently, but the way that they're living their life is not sinful. Now, I don't know if this has ever happened to you or not, but I, I had a situation where this sort of happened about, uh, it was probably about six months to a year ago now. We had a, a couple uh, in our uh, neighborhood who came over to eat. And when they came over to eat, I noticed when they walked in the door, the wife had a can of food in her hand. Now, I'm thinking to myself, wait now, my, my wife cooked. They knew they were coming over to eat. Why does she have a can of food in her hand? Well, she was a pescatarian. She only ate fish. I think that's what that is anyways. She only ate fish. And I remember at that moment in that time, I'm thinking to myself, she only eats fish? You know, that's just, that's just sort of strange to me. That's sort of weird to me. And she was explaining to me, you know, I didn't want to tell y'all because I didn't want y'all to have to prepare anything specifically for me. So I just decided to bring a can of food and I'll heat it up in the microwave if I need to type of thing. But the whole time I'm judging her, all right, in that moment and in that time. You only eat fish? That's just weird to me. Like, sure, you want some red meat sometime, right? And I had a Romans 14 moment in that moment and in that time. I did. I'm admitting it right now before you and before God. That happened. I was despising her for being a pescatarian. And so in that situation, in that moment, that would be considered judgment, all right? Well, let's look at some other situations. Now let's say that you have a, a Christian brother and sister or sister, and uh, let's say that one of them all of a sudden now is doing something that is sinful. And so now you have another Christian brother or sister that comes up to them and essentially sees that they are doing this, they go to them in a, in a loving, now this is key also, a loving and gracious way, and they decide to tell them, hey, these are the things that I've noticed that you're doing, and your whole goal in that is trying to bring them back into communion, back into a relationship with the Lord. 
Now all of a sudden that is considered reproof or rebuke, which I know is, can be seem difficult at times to take, but is a good thing. And the whole point in that is to try to bring the person back, but you notice that they're doing something that is sinful in their life, so you have to go to them in a loving and, 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 and very gracious way and make sure to try to bring them back. Now, in that situation, that would not be considered judgment. That's a situation where you may hear those phrases a lot of times, right? Don't judge me. You're being judgy. And then all of a sudden that person obviously doesn't like what they're hearing, so they're trying to push the blame back on the other person. But we've got to make sure that in that instance we understand the whole point of that is going in with the right heart, humbly, realizing that we have the plank in our own eye and that we've struggled with sinfulness in our own life as well, and we're trying to bring them back into a relationship with God. But now let's take another instance. Let's say that you have a Christian and you have a non-Christian now. And let's say that you look at the non-Christian and you're realizing that that non-Christian is living a way that you sort of just think is crazy or you sort of despise. Well, now as a Christian, if you're looking down on that person for living that way, guess what? You are judging them. Why? Because they don't live by the same standard, by the same book of truth that we live by, by the Bible. And so therefore, in that moment in time, when you see that happening, the most important thing that you can do is insert, i.e., the gospel in that moment in time. That's what they need the most. They don't need to be told how terrible what they're doing is or how wrong it is. Now, obviously, if they're going to hurt themselves or somebody else, that's a different situation, right? Maybe some emergency things need to happen. But at the same time, a lot of times we just want to talk bad about them or how terrible what they're doing is when really what they need is what? The gospel. That's what they need at that moment in time. They need to understand that they are a sinner in need of a savior. They need to understand what Christ Jesus did for them on the cross. That's the only way that they're going to be able to fix that problem. It's not gonna be you telling them that they're doing wrong, but it's gonna be you going to them in a loving and gracious way and inserting the gospel into their lives because ultimately it's God who does the changing. And so there's a, there, hopefully that helps you there with those situations of seeing the difference between judgment and accountability. But let's get back to the text here where it talks about Romans chapter 14. It says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? So remember, we have the two Christians who are despising each other, looking down their nose at each other about one eating uh, meat and the other's just eating vegetables. It says, or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, this word in the Greek, judgment seat of God, it's bima in the Greek. And whenever we see this word referenced within the Greek, uh, it is typically referring to the judgment that will come to the believer. It's the judgment, this bima, this judgment seat of God is the judgment that will come to the believer. And so I know if you're anything like me, you're asking yourself, okay, wait, 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 what does that look like? I'm, I'm a Christian, right? So, I mean, I shouldn't be judged. Like, what, what does that mean that there's going to be judgment that comes to me when Christ returns? Well, we're going to get to that. And so this word bima is also a picture of a, uh, of a judge sitting on his throne and handing down, uh, or sitting in his chair and handing down his verdict. But it's also a picture of a king sitting on his throne and either passing the scepter or not. 
extending that or not. It's also a picture of a king in a gladiatorial uh, arena and sitting in his box and either giving the thumbs up or the thumbs down, maybe as you've seen on the movies, or extending that rose because he loved what he had seen. That's the picture that we're getting. But then also here uh, in Romans chapter 14, verse verse, uh, 10 through uh, 12, this judgment seat of God, the question becomes, who is doing the judging? Well, John, you don't have to turn there, but just reference it. John chapter 5, verse 22, tells us who's doing the judging, and it says that the Son will do the judging. So ultimately, God has given that responsibility to the Son. So God the Father has given the responsibility to God the Son to do the judging. All right? That's one of the roles that he plays. So it says, For we all will stand before the judgment seat of God, For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Can you imagine with me just for a second? What does it say? It says each one of us. We are all going to be standing there mano e mano with Christ. You're not going to be able to hide behind anything at that moment in time. Your parents' faith is not going to sustain you at that moment in time. Uh, your, your community group is not going to be able to help you out. Your eloquent words are not going to be able to help you out at that moment in time. We know that Christ, when God, what does he look at? It tells us in 1 Samuel 16, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The heart, Right. It doesn't matter how much makeup you got on that day. It doesn't matter what your Facebook picture looks like. It doesn't matter what your Instagram looks like. He's going to be looking straight at your heart in that moment, in that time. And you're going to be standing there mano e mano with Christ. In a sense, I think what a scary moment. But at the same time, I've got to trust in knowing as a Christian who I believe in and who I put my trust and my faith in. But what else is that going to look like? Well, I'm going to turn, and you don't have to turn there with me. Just stay where you're at. But 2 Corinthians 5, 9 gives us, uh, through 10, gives us a little bit more light on what this is going to look like. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 10 says, So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For or because we must all appear before the judgment seat. Now, this actually says the judgment seat of Christ. They've gone ahead and inserted that in the translation instead of saying God, but the same word, Bema, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We are going to be judged based off of our deeds. Now, immediately when I say that, some of you are thinking to yourself, whoa, 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 Joby, wait now. Wait, I'm not saved by works, right? I'm saved by grace. And you're exactly right. We know that, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. You're saved by grace through faith, not a result of works. But now that you are saved, you gotta do what? You gotta get to work, right? It's going to be a proof of your salvation. It does not justify you in any way, but we know that a good tree will bear what? Good fruit, and a bad tree will bear what? Bad fruit, And so therefore, you're going to be judged based off of that fruit. And so we've got to remember that in this. And so a picture that I like to see and one that sort of John Piper uh, gave to me as I I was reading through this and studying this 
He says, essentially, we're going to be based or judged off of our deeds. And so let's say that you have this A pile, okay? And in this A pile, these are all of your good deeds, okay? These are all the things that you did with humility. These are all the things that you did uh, for the glory of God. These are all the things that were done for the right reasons. Ultimately, if you think about your A pile, all the good deeds, those are all the things that God allowed you to do through the power of his Holy Spirit. So ultimately, everything that you're giving him good deeds-wise, he gave you through the power of his Holy Spirit. Isn't that amazing? Who does that? Who rewards you based off of what he gave you? Right? God does. And then over here, let's say, let's take all your bad deeds. Let's say this is your F file, if we want to go to school, back to school, right? Sorry, students, I know you don't want to. All right, let's take your F pile here. Now, if you're anything like me, your A pile is probably down here and your F pile is probably way up here. All the failures in your life, all the times that you have done something uh, that you didn't do with the right heart. I mean, there may be things that you thought you did correctly or you thought you had good intentions behind it, but ultimately when you look at the heart, it wasn't done for the right reasons. I mean, I could be standing up here today and not doing this for the right reasons. Even though I'm preaching the word of God, I could be wanting to get puffed up or bring glory to myself and not to God. And so therefore, eventually one day it's going to be put in my F pile, right? Or maybe you could help somebody, but the only reason you're helping them is so that you could get something back in return. Or maybe you want to give to the church, but the only reason you're giving to the church is for tax purposes. I don't know what it is. All right. There's all these different reasons it could be, but they just weren't done for the right reasons and with the right heart. They weren't done to glorify Christ. Well, what's going to happen in that moment in time when each one of you are standing there before Christ is he's going to do, he's going to reach back. And this is what John Piper says. He's going to reach back and he's going to break off a piece of his cross and he's going to light it on fire and he's going to burn up that F pile. What an amazing day that will be. And then all that will be left is your good deeds. And then you're going to be rewarded based off of these good deeds. Your mansion, your crown, or your, your jewels and your crown, all of those things are based off of this, right? Now, I know when you think of the fact that God works off a reward system, if you're anything like me, if you're super competitive, you're thinking to yourself, okay, well, how can I get more rewards? Well, all of a sudden, what am I doing? I'm just building up my F pile, right? Over here. Because that's what I'm thinking. Or, you know, when I get to heaven, I can't wait to see all those people who have less than me. And I'm like, ha, look at y'all. Or the people who have more than me. And I'm just thinking, oh my goodness. You know, those people are kissing tail. You know, that's, that's what I'm thinking in my mind, right? But we got to remember, there is no sin in heaven. So those reactions to those things are going to be completely different than we may react to them here on this earth. But we know because the Bible tells us that God works somehow, some way off a reward system that is not going to cause sinfulness in our own hearts. So now that we've looked at the judgment that comes to the uh, believer, now let's turn with me, if you will, to Revelation. And we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 20, and we're going to be looking at the judgment that comes to the non-believer. And we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. And it's on page 1040 of your pew Bibles, page 1040 of your pew Bibles. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. I'm going to read, read along with me as I read out loud. It says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away 
and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now I want to make sure I preface this with the fact that I am not here to give you your eschatological view, your study of end times view as I'm sitting here in Revelation. I just want to make that clear. Okay, that's not my purpose in this. My purpose is to look at the judgment that comes to the non-believer. But if you want to know about the uh, eschatological view, uh, pre-trib, post-trib, pre-millennial, amillennial, that's a question for the head pastor. Okay, um, that's why he gets paid the big bucks, right? Um, and so make sure you ask him to do a, a whole series on Revelation when that time comes. Um, but I'm not here to do that, okay? Uh, I'm here to talk about the judgment that comes to the non-believer. But one thing I, I would like to say about Revelation is that this is an actual book that was written in an actual place by an actual person. I wanna make sure you understand that and that is clear. Uh, I have actually, Ryland and I have actually gone to the island of Patmos. We have seen the cave where John penned the very book of Revelation. It is something that happened in that moment in that time because he had been exiled to that island. He had been exiled by Domitian, who was a Roman Caesar at the time, and he ultimately was claiming to be a god like many of the Caesars of that time did. And so here's this crazy man, John, who is talking about this one true god, and he doesn't like it. So what does he do? He puts him in a vat of oil and he tries to kill him. But that didn't kill him. Miraculously, through the power of God, John lived through that boiling vat of oil. Now, you're not going to find that in the scriptures. We see that through the historians, Tertullian and Josephus and others. But we see that when he could not get rid of him by doing that, what did he do? He decided to exile him to an island. Well, if I can't kill him, then I'm just going to put him on some obscure island. And guess what? He will never have any purpose or anything will ever come from him. Nobody will ever hear anything about what he writes or says, right? Well, guess what? Valdosta, Georgia, 2018, we've got the book that he penned on that island sitting in our hands. What an amazing God we serve. So this is an actual book that was written by an actual person on an actual island that actually exists. And these things are going to actually happen. They're real. And the reason I tell you that is because I want you to understand the seriousness of what I'm about to say and to explain to you. Because so many times we hear things like that and what do we do, Whew, right? In one ear, out the other. We think nothing of it, but one day this will happen. These things will actually happen. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Can you imagine with me for a second this great white throne and each of the non-believers standing there before Christ. What a very, very scary moment that is going to be. It may be scary for us as believers, but for them who are not in Christ, it's going to be even worse. 
And the reason it's a great white throne, I mean, can you imagine, I'm just picturing this huge white throne, is because white is the picture of what? It's the picture of purity. It's the picture of righteousness, of holiness. And then as we continue on, what does it say? From his presence, earth and sky fled away. Now, why did earth and sky, some translations say earth and heaven fled away? Why did they flee away? Because there was sin in both of those, wasn't there? Think about it. What happened in heaven? Lucifer fell, right? Satan fell from heaven. What happened on earth? Obviously, Adam and Eve, and then we've all inherited that. So in the presence of a holy and righteous God, what happens to earth and sky or earth and heaven? They flee away. And then one day, what's going to happen when Christ returns? He's going to make new what? Heaven and what? Earth, right? That's amazing. So from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I, talking about John here, saw the dead, saw the non-believer, great and small. So whenever you hear this great white throne, it always referring to back to the non-believer. Whenever you hear the judgment seat of God or Christ, it's referring to the believer. So, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Now there it is, a plural books. Those books that it's talking about there are the deeds of the non-believers, okay? They're written there in those books. So just like we are going to be judged for our deeds, the non-believer is going to be judged for their deeds as well. But guess what? The non-believer will not have an A pile, right? Everything that they do without a relationship with Jesus Christ is what? It's filthy rags. We know that, right? And also, they're not going to have the cross of Christ to burn up the F pile. So therefore, they are going to stand what? Condemned. Judgment for the believer is purification. Judgment for the non-believer is what? Condemnation. Let me say it again. Judgment for the believer is purification. Judgment for the non-believer is condemnation. And it says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. The books of the deeds. Then another book was opened. Now this is singular. And we're going to see here in just a second. It says what? Which is the book of life. Now this is the book where all Christians' names will be written. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by the deeds, by their deeds, according to, it says it right there, according to what they had done. And then it says, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Now why does it make reference to that? I think a reason that it makes reference to the sea is that the sea was a chaotic and scary place at that moment in that time, culturally. It was a place that they could not control. It was a place, if you've ever seen the old maps that they saw that sea creatures were in. Uh, if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, they talk about how all of a sudden out of nowhere, it can have these big waves and it gets real crazy because all the wind that comes off the mountains and whatnot, ultimately because of God, right? And so therefore, it was, a, it was a chaotic and scary place and they didn't like it. And so here, just talking about that uh, the sea gave up the dead, uh, that's just a bad place to die and a scary place for someone to die uh, culturally. So in the sea gave up the dead who were in it and death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. Now, Hades typically is a reference here to a place where people who die go before they end up going into their eternal resting place of the lake of fire. All right, a place where they will be tormented until they eventually end up in the lake of fire. So it says, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. 
Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, this is the second death, it says. In the second death, you're living for eternity forever. So if you can think of the torment, if you can think of the pain and the suffering that comes to you in this life, well, that pain and that suffering eventually will end and you die. Well, then when you have the second death, guess what? You're not dying. So you have to go through that pain and that torment and that torture for the rest of your life. There's not going to be any amount of shock or another death that comes at that point in time. Instead, you're going to have to endure that forever and ever and ever. And I tell you that because I want to hopefully poke and prod you to give you a sense of urgency in your life to share the gospel with those that don't know Christ. Because this is where their eternity rests if they don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ. For some of you in this room, this may be where your eternity rests. I understand that with a room with this many people in it. And so my hope and my prayer for you is that you would realize and understand what is to come. And that this right here is something that is actually going to happen. And this right here is the most important thing that we can be telling our friends and our family members and our neighbors. The gospel, that is the most important thing. So many times we spend so much time talking about other things that don't really matter. That we're not bold enough to insert the gospel in those situations and in those conversations and in those times. Don't help the condemnation that is to come. It doesn't need any help. Love that person. Care for that person enough that you would share the gospel with them because it's going to happen. No doubt about it. The only two sure things in this life, right? Death and taxes. It's going to happen. We will all stand before our maker one day And either we'll have Christ to be able to stand in our stead or we won't. That's the only options we have. You know, I'm going to tell you a story and I'm a little hesitant to tell you the story just because I don't want in any way, uh, by any shape or form, uh, to, uh, to puff myself up in the story or my wife in this. But I just want to tell you the story as an encouragement to you. I have, a, I have a son uh, that is seven years old. His name is Bauer. And obviously, I hope as any parent who is a Christian in this room, it is our greatest desire for him and for Groover and for Rook to come to know the Lord. We pray every evening for them. We give them uh, uh, scripture verses to memorize. Uh, at that age, seven and four, they can memorize them like you would never believe. A lot better than you can. And it's one of those things that there are definitely some nights that we miss. There are some nights that we don't do it because of our laziness. There's some nights that we don't do it because we're being sinful. There's some nights that we just don't care at that moment in that time. And we just want them to go to bed. We have those nights too. But I try to, in every situation that the Holy Spirit leads me to, I try to insert the gospel into Bauer and to Groover's and to Rook's life any way that I can. It doesn't always have to be some formal meeting time where we're meeting and this is what we're talking about. No, he'll say something to me and I'll say, that is a terrible worldview, not to him, but I'm thinking in my head. And then I insert a gospel at that moment and at that time. And I'll never forget, 
one of the greatest moments of my life up to this point. It was Father's Day this past year. I was at camp. Uh, I was at a, I wasn't here that Sunday. I was actually at an Auburn basketball camp, a father-son Auburn basketball camp. That was the, the, the gift that my wife gave me of being able to go to this Auburn son basketball camp. Um, and uh, I got to go with uh, Bauer with my oldest son. And uh, we had just gotten uh, done that day of, of, of competing with other dads and sons and learning how to uh, shoot a basketball and stuff like that. And we were actually, we were on our way uh, to Chick-fil-A to get some ice cream. It was Saturday night. And I remember Bauer, he just made a comment, just a random comment. He said, Daddy, I really miss Mommy and I really love her. That's what he said as we're going to Chick-fil-A. And you're thinking to yourself, that is sweet, that is innocent, that is awesome, and that's what I was thinking. But for some reason, I decided to take an opportunity to insert gospel here. And I said to him, I said, Bauer, that is amazing, that's awesome that you love your mommy. I said, but you know what? It would be even greater if you love Jesus Christ more than her. I said, because if you love Jesus Christ more than her, guess what? You're gonna love your mommy that much more. And you know what he said? He looked at me and he said, Dad, well, I have... I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. I do love Jesus Christ. And I about slammed on brakes because we have had multiple conversations like this before, and he has never made that statement before ever in his life. Now, I'm very, very careful with him because he's seven years old, and he has seen a lot of baptisms happen for kids his age recently, and I just want to make sure that I'm doing everything I can, humanly possible, uh, not to steer him in a wrong direction or not to keep him from that as well. So there's a balance that has to happen there. And so, of course, me being a pastor and me hearing a lot of people have told me that in their life, I have to do what? I have to analyze it, right? I have to ask questions. I have to try to think through this and make sure that it's right. You know, probably there's probably some wrong in this, but that's just the way I, I think. And so I told him, I said, okay, Bauer, I said, what do you mean by you believe in Jesus Christ? I'm wanting him to tell his testimony, right? But obviously he doesn't know what that is. And so I'm like, what do you mean by that? Tell me more about that. And he said, well, daddy, about two weeks ago, he said, I was talking to mommy and I was talking to mommy about the judgment to come. And I said, what? <laughs> you were talking to mommy about judgment? And he was like, yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. What did that conversation look like? You know? And uh, now let me tell you, if we're trying to teach our children about the judgment, it is probably not maybe what sometimes you think about the judgment, right? Hey, Bauer, you want to go on the streets paved with gold or you want to go to hell? Uh, gold, daddy. All right, you're going to heaven then. No, it's not like that. All right, of course he's going to pick that, right? It's not like that at all. We're very cautious, very careful, but at the same time speaking truth into his life. And so they had this conversation, still don't know exactly what was said in this conversation. But anyways, after that conversation, he decided he was going to go read his Bible. He has this action Bible. It's a comic book Bible uh, that has these little circles and, you know, people are in there that look really cool and stuff like that. He loves it. And so he went back to his room to read this Bible. He flipped to the back and was reading about the judgment to come. Well, after he got done reading about this, he decided he was going to read, flip to a little bit more of the center of it, and he was going to read about, uh, about Christ and about Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us. And he said, Daddy, after I got done reading about the judgment, I flipped to the center, and I read about Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And he said, I believed. I said, what do you mean you believed? Like, what, what are you talking about? He said, I don't know, Daddy. I can't explain it to you. He said, I just believed. I said, okay. I said, well, let me ask you two questions. 
And these are two questions that, that I, I, I've always asked him and wanted to ask him, but I never give him the answer to it, at least in a simple way. I want him to think through and I want the Holy Spirit to lead him in it. So I said, let me ask you two questions. I said, if you were to die today, and we hope that doesn't happen, if you were to die today, uh, are you 100% sure you'd go to heaven? And he was like, I don't, I don't know, Dave. Yeah, I think so, probably. I said, okay. I said, well, let me ask you another question. I said, if you were standing there before God, why would he let you in to his heaven? And he said again, he said, I, I don't know, I don't know, Daddy. I said, well, think about it. You're claiming to be a Christian. Why would he let you in? And he said, because I believe in Jesus Christ. I was like, I can, I can roll with that, right? And I remember I had one more question for him before we finished this conversation and showed up to Chick-fil-A. I said, Bauer, let me ask you one more thing. I said, why did you wait two weeks to tell me this? And he said, Daddy, he said, I knew that we were going to be at this father-son camp and I knew we were going to be alone, so I wanted to tell you then. <laughs> and uh, it was one of those things that just the moment right now, as it was then, I was fighting back tears. But it's amazing how God is faithful, how he is faithful in those moments and in those times. Yes, it does talk about in Proverbs to raise your children in this way. But guess what? It's not a 100% promise that it's going to happen. But it's a really good idea. God ultimately is the one who is in control. So even when you're going to your family and your friends, even when you're going to your little children and you're being bold and speaking to them the gospel, you're not the one who is in control of whether they actually come to know the Lord or not. That is a work of God in their life. So my hope and my prayer in telling you all of this is that you would realize and understand that this is something that is actually going to happen in the sense of urgency, of poking and of prodding you to understand that you need to be bold in your witness for the Lord because he has given us the commands. He has called us to be obedient to him in the fact that we need to go out and to glorify him through the preaching and the teaching of the word and the sharing of the gospel. Because one day he will return. And guess what? None of us in this room know when that day will come. So my hope and my prayer for you is that this verse, these verses would drive you, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, that they would drive you to your knees and that you would realize your need for Jesus Christ. And as a believer, that that would spur you on to go out and to share the gospel with those that are around you. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dear Lord, we just thank you so much, God, for today. We thank you, Lord, for the judgment that is to come and for the reminder of that. But the fact, Lord, that those of us that are followers of Christ, we have you to stand in our stead and that we are seen as holy and righteous, but only through the lens of Jesus Christ. And that, Lord, that Jesus Christ is the only way back to you, God. We thank you so much, Lord, for that promise. We thank you so much, Lord, for God, the sending of your son. We thank you so much, Lord, for you giving us the ability through the power of your Holy Spirit to live and to work uh, for you in any way, God. And Lord, I just pray that all the parents that are in this room and all the people that are in this room, that God, you would make them bold for the gospel, God, that they would see the sense of urgency that is there, God, and the importance of it and that they would live their lives in light of that each and every day. 
And Lord, we just thank you so much for this time that we have had and for the great reminder in your word. We pray this in your son's precious name through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God. Amen.